Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This is Chapter 12 in a temporary reformatting of the show, as we document what's happening in and around the city due to the impact of the COVID-19 coronavirus. As of this episode, case counts and hospitalizations are still rising in Amarillo. Unfortunately, we've become a national hotspot. But the state of Texas has made plans to start opening up businesses in phases. So we're currently walking a delicate balance as we try to stay physically and economically healthy. Businesses are starting to think about reopening while protecting employees and customers, and while following strict health guidelines. One local business that has been doing a great job of that is a sponsor of this episode. It's Pestex Lawn and Pest Services. Ben came over to spray our home, Ben with Pestex, a couple of weeks ago. We asked him to just do the outside, not to come in the house. He was totally fine with that. Nevertheless, he was taking every precaution. He was wearing gloves and a mask and taking care to reduce or minimize his touching of any of the surfaces around our home. So spring is here, summer is approaching, and Pestex has started to schedule yard sprays for fleas, ticks, mosquitoes. So this is a good time to do that. It's a safe time to have that kind of spray done outside your house. So to get in touch, call or text 806-433-8841 or look up Pestex on Facebook or Instagram. Now on to the show. With positive cases on the increase in the Texas Panhandle and with the stay-at-home mindset starting to draw down a little... I wanted to hear from people who know more about COVID-19 than almost anyone else. Local nurses who have been serving in hospitals in the hard-hit New York City area. They've been on the front lines of this battle. Some have come back home. Others are still there, are still working. They have seen its immediate impact. This episode is being released on April 30th, 2020. These interviews were recorded prior to that, so things may have changed by the time you listen. Here's the show. I'm Monica Blucker, and I am an RN, uh, graduated from uh, West Texas A&M. I started off at Northwest in ICU, um, and I worked there for three years until I had um, my twins, and then I stayed home with my handicapped child for nine years and then went into home health for the past nine years. Have you had any sort of like specialty, whether it's in the home health side or when you were an RN? I mean, is is there anything that has been your, your major focus? Well, no, not really. I mean, ICU, I really loved, I had a love for that. I love to critically think, but you know, I had to stay home and take care of my little girl, Abby. So it kind of ended that but, I mean, it was fine. I took care of her, and I learned a lot. And she recently passed away about a year and a half ago. And um, so since then, I've I've went out of just been, you know, sitting quietly. Tell me about the circumstances then that brought you to New York City to, to work this uh, the last couple of days. I just felt like, there was a need. Um, you know, I started hearing about how the nurses weren't given the proper equipment and um, the hours were really hard and they were overwhelmed and there wasn't enough nurses. And I guess, you know, just being a, a nurse and then being a part of 
something greater. I kind of miss that um, feeling of being able to take care of someone. And so I just felt like that I wanted to go. And and anyway, so a friend of mine um, worked for Crucial Staffing and said, you know, they're sending nurses up there. And she gave me the contact. And so I called and finally got in. And so now here I am. How long have you been in New York City working? Um, today is actually my 22nd day, 23rd day. Okay, so, so most of April then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got here April 5th um, and then started working April 6th, basically the next day. And um, started seeing patients that Wednesday. And then just, you know, since then, so. Tell me where you've been working and what, like, what kinds of shifts have you been pulling? I work nights and I work at Jacoby Medical Center. You know, they give us transportation. We get on the bus around 545 and we get home around 830, 8:45. So a little bit longer than 12 hours, but. Yeah. And you're, are you getting any days off? I, I know that today when we're talking is a day off for you, but how many days off are you getting? No, you're supposed to work straight through work um, that you can get off, or um, you can have a day off if you ask 48 hours in advance. Um, so potentially two days you can get off. I took one off um, during after my 14-day straight, and then... Um, now I'm moving into another 21 days, so they give you three days off in between your 21. So I'm taking my three days, and then I'll start again Thursday. So tell me what it's been like. I mean, obviously working such long shifts and, and with so little breaks, that's physically exhausting. But, I mean, tell me about, you know, the the things that you've seen and what you've had to deal with. I Shocking. Um, very shocking. The very overwhelmed, the nurses, a lot of anxiety, um, yelling nonstop, <laughs> a little bit um, hostile environment, I guess I would say, you know, just because the stress, the stress is so great. Um, the patients are so sick and almost all of them are um, unstable, critical, um, the ones that I've been dealing with. Um, there's probably two floors that are really unstable, critical, and then more stable, critical. And um, but it they should be really one to one, but there's still not enough staffing for that. So you really take two, and um, and you hope that you have some help doing that. So and other agency nurses when they're on the floor with us, um, we do get the help. But you know there are a lot of times where. Um, agency nurses or, you know, crucial nurses will be the only, um, nurses on the floor hmm. and their nurses have been taking off or they're sick. They've actually caught it and they're sick and out. It's been eye opening. It's, um, it's a very, um, overwhelmed system, you know, uh, way from the doctors down to even the nurse tech, it's hard. It's a hard environment to work in. You know, it's rewarding. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm wondering if 
you know, given the difficulties, if the the rewarding side of it balances that out? I mean, just personally, how are you handling, you know, the emotional toll that, that comes from working in those environments and from dealing with such sick people? Well, it is rewarding for me because, you know, I realize that this is the time in our nation and really in our world that, you know, I've never seen it like this. So, um, just to be a part and to know that I was there, you know, that I was trying to make a difference, you know, and, um, trying to bring a positive light in, um, you know, the patients don't get that one-on-one, um, like they normally would probably, Um, the nurses, when they started off, they did not know what this was. And so it scared them because they started seeing people dying. Um, one by, they got to where they didn't touch the patient. They basically cared for the patient outside of the patient room. And so those patients were very isolated. They don't see their family. Um, it's, it just is a very sad situation. Um, and then when we came in, we actually have our PPE, um, and now we know a little bit more. And, um, so I'm always in the room. I try to make sure that I'm there for the patient, um, physically and just showing compassion because I feel like that's a lot of what nursing is. It's a lot of compassion and mixed in with the medicine and the knowledge um, and, and I feel like, you know, the patient outcomes will be better if they actually have someone who is hands-on with them. And we're able to do that. And we're able to lift the load a little bit off of the New York nurses and um, hopefully give them a little bit of a break or, you know, just help them feel like they're um, not a little really to come to help them. And, um, and it was an honor to come to be here to help them. Could you tell me a little bit about maybe how you viewed the virus before you got there and and how that's changed? I mean, you talk about education and about, um, you know, the the knowledge that you gain. How how has that changed personally for you, you know, since you've been on the ground working? Well, it definitely has changed. Um, Before, you know, you... I guess you have this preconceived notion of what you think it's going to be, um, you know, cause you hear, you know, it's, it's a lot like the flu. Um, we didn't know a lot about it at first and, um, you know, they said it would, um, put the patient in acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is ARDS. You know, I, I've taken care of patients in ARDS and, um, I thought, you know, okay, it, it can't be that big of a deal. You know, mortality rate for ARDS is 60%. I mean, but people live. Um, when I got here, that is not the case. Um, I realized very quickly that this was more than arts. Um, the patients were presenting the same way, um, almost every one of them. And it's hard to explain, but, you know, without being gruesome, I mean, they're clotting off on the inside, but bleeding out on the outside. And it's something that I knew there was no way it was different and it was not like the flu, you know, in flu season, you don't have a whole hospital full of ventilators because you can't breathe. I mean, it, it definitely overwhelms the system. It's virulent. It's just, it's awful. 
It is. It's an awful virus. It, it really is. And, you know, and it's hard because I, I understand that, you know, what I see is the 2%. Um, but, and that number probably is going to change once the numbers start really coming in and we get a grasp on what is actually, um, you know, who's getting it. And I, it, it's going to take some time. Um, but like I said, if it is care of the 2%, I mean, it's an ugly death. It's a terrible, ugly virus. It is not like the flu. Um, I don't know. I've never seen anything like it. And it de- debilitates you completely. And it's just awful. I hope we find a way to treat. You know, we need to find a way to treat it. We need more information. Um, and, and it doesn't seem like it's just with the old. You know, I have seen from 23-year-olds to 90-year-olds. So it is not, it's not just an old person's, um, you know, and even comorbidities. Yes, they might have diabetes and hypertension, but then there's some that are healthy. So I, you know, it's hard to say, you know, what actually it is that, that the virus picks these people, but it's awful. I've yet to see, um, one person um, on the floor that I've been on, I've yet to see one person um, completely be taken off the ventilator. And I have seen them one I I mean, I have seen it. And it's just terrible. And, you know, just overwhelming the system. It is. We're out of everything. You know, we're out of um, just all kinds of medical things that, you know, it, it takes a little bit to get in. The gowns, you know. And they're resorting to other things um, when they don't have the gowns to protect us. And, you know, then they bring in the sterile gowns. And so then we use the sterile gowns. I mean, it's just, it's overwhelmed the system big time. How do you feel about your own safety in that environment? I mean, what's what's the thinking that, that you have to, I guess, handle, um, you know, knowing that, that you're... You're working with with the equipment that you have available, but you're also exposing yourself to, um, you know, to a pretty heavy potential viral load. Yes. Um, some days that reality um, concerns me a little bit, but I try to, I know the body well, and I feel like if I can um, change the way that the virus attaches to me, then you know, I have a lower chance of getting it. So I do things like uh, make sure and take antioxidants. I uh, um, colloid silver spray um, and I spray it in at, like all my mucous membranes that will be exposed. I spray it. And so I didn't want to just sit around when all this was going on. I, I felt like I needed to do something. And so that's another reason I felt like I was healthy and I felt like um, it would make a difference. So that's another reason why I came. Monica, the, the last question I've been asking my guests is what's giving you hope right now? So given what you've seen, given the, the very difficult conditions you've been working in, is there anything that gives you a sense of optimism? Well, for one, I mean... Uh, the Lord, for one, for me, um, you know, I feel like he places things on my heart and I feel like, you know, when, when I feel like I need to go do something and there's a calling, then 
I want to be able to spring into action to do it. And so that's one thing that I did. I feel like that given what I've been through in life, I just felt like I could make a difference. You know, I do care for people and, you know, and I'm not afraid to tell them and, and share that. Um, so that was a big drive for me to be able to, to do that. And it, it does give me hope. And, you know, I feel like with compassion and love and, um, a healing touch, I feel like, you know, can make a difference with these people. And so, and I, and I do, I, you know, one of my patients is actually, um, got moved off the floor. He did get, he, he's not there. He's better, you know? So, um, um, it does give me hope. And, and the more time that goes on, I'm hopeful that they'll be able to find a way to eat this. Cause we definitely approach this in the wrong way. And, you know, and it wasn't our fault lung infection that would cause um, ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome is that disables, dismantles the red blood cell from carrying oxygen. And that's a big difference. I mean, we can't, we, we need to treat it differently. You know, hyperbaric chamber that um, pushes oxygen into the cell, we could approach it that way, or we could um, use blood transfusions to give a new red blood cell that wasn't dismantled. I mean, those are ideas I know that would make sense to me. I'm not a researcher, but um, that would make sense to think that maybe that would work. Um, Or adding, you know, the antivirals like with Ebola. I know they're doing some of that. Um, And then, of course, the plasma uh, with the antibodies in it. Um, I have seen and had patients that um, have had that as well. So hopefully soon, you know, things change every week, I noticed, with the treatment. You know, the first week I got here, it was Plaquenil. Um, I gave Plaquenil all the time. Um, Then the second week, it really wasn't so much Plaquenil. It was more vitamin C, zinc. Um, Now it's more vitamin C. Or anticoagulating, which is we're giving blood thinners. You know, they're trying, they're trying to try anything that's going to save these people. You know, it takes a mental toll when you're watching, you know, this many people um, pass away and perish. You know, they want to get it figured out. So, well, Monica Blucker, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I, I appreciate your time and I, I appreciate how well you're representing Amarillo. Well, thank you. It's an honor. My name is Chewy Hernandez. I'm a registered nurse out of Amarillo, Texas. Chewy, how long have you been a nurse? Uh, roughly 12 years as a registered nurse. Okay, and do you, do you have a specialty? Do you work in a, a certain sector? Uh, primarily, uh, background is uh, ICU. I've done surgical ICU, coronary care, medical ICU. And uh, I did do flight nursing as well, some uh, ER nursing. Okay, and as I understand it, you recently returned to Amarillo after having uh, gone up to the New York City area to help as a nurse. Is is that accurate? That is correct. Uh, I was up there roughly, it, it was supposed to be two weeks, it ended up being about 12 days, but I uh, just got back about four days ago. 
Okay, and did you go up there as like part of a contingent of other nurses, or were you just there as an individual? Uh, no, it was a group of uh, six nurses uh, based out of uh, Arden Healthcare here in Amarillo, which is BSA. Uh, I believe four of us were ICU nurses. One was a kind of a resource floater, and then the last one was ER. And where did you find yourself working in that area? So um, we were actually assigned to a sister hospital out of Arden Healthcare, which is Amarillo. Um, the hospital was called Hackensack Meridian Health Center, and it was based out of Montclair, New Jersey. Um, we were, uh, four of us, I see nurses were placed on a, what they consider a COVID unit, which was high acuity, ventilator patients, ICU. That's, that's the type of, uh, environment we worked in every day. Well, tell me, tell me what it was like. I mean, what, what kinds of things did you see in terms of the number of patients, the severity of the disease? I mean, what, what was your experience there? Uh, you know, I was comparing it to the hospital here in Amarillo. Um, here at Arden, we normally take two patients up to three. While we were there in New Jersey, we were taking three patients. It could take four. I never had to, but um, the type of patients we took were all, of course, COVID positive, all on ventilators, all on about minimum three to four drips, including sedation, paralytics what they call basal pressure to keep blood pressure up. Um, and it, it was a very, very busy unit. Uh, we had a lot of uh, what they call code scenarios, cardiac arrest. Um, I mean, it was busy. From the time you got there to the time you left, 12-hour shifts were actually pretty fast just because it was so busy. The you know the stories that we've heard from here in Amarillo coming out of that area is is always about the intensity um, you know whether it's the emotional intensity of the moment or just how you know how sick some of the patients were. I mean, was was that your experience? Did you go into it sort of expecting that kind of thing? You know, going into it, I didn't really know what to expect. I mean, you heard all the stories on the news, and uh, you kind of just thought, well, let's just let's just see what happens. Um, so going into it, I, I knew we'd have a few, you know, busy, sick patients. But the whole time I was there, they were really sick, um, critical, unstable. Um, it just it was it was what you typically see here in Amarillo a few times in a year. I mean, you saw it in every day. All three patients were just busy and. Also, your your neighbor nurses that worked right next to you. I mean, it, they were so busy. It was just it was overwhelming busy at some times. So, do you feel like having done that and then coming back here? You know, where you know reports now are that some of the numbers in Amarillo are starting to to intensify. I mean, do you feel like that was a good learning experience in that environment that that maybe you can apply here if necessary? Uh, yeah, to some extent. I mean, I think part of it was just to take it, you know, more serious. I don't think Amarillo people, probably include myself, before I took this adventure, you know, maybe didn't take it as serious as, as, as most people should. And then you go to New Jersey where they're by the book. I mean, uh, you know, we got there late one day and grocery stores closed at eight. They opened up late. So we were having a hard time getting groceries. I mean, 
they make you wait every six feet. They make you wear a mask. If you don't wear a mask, they don't allow you to go in. I mean, they were um, strict about all that. And then, you know, you go work your shifts, and then you see these people dying, and you see these people sick, and you're like, this is why. Like, I think at some point, uh, either a family member, a friend, or somebody you knew was either um, in that scenario where they had either passed away from the virus or were in critical condition. So I can see why they were really serious about it. And then coming back through the Amarillo, it's like uh, still kind of, they're kind of lax about it. And I think part of it is just they hadn't seen that type of uh, scenario that we were placed in. But uh, in the hospital setting, um, yeah, I, I think there were some things that we learned, um, maybe some possible treatments. Like, like, you know, you hear this is all new to everybody. So a lot of the treatments we were using, uh, you know, we won't know till later down the road how effective they were. I mean, uh, the patients were just so sick. I don't know if there was any treatment you could do for some of those people. Um, they were just that bad. But, uh, yeah, you know, gowning up and everything, using your PPEs, uh, and then, um, you know, working as a team, I think. Um, and then with your nurses in addition to your physicians, I think – kind of open your eyes on how you really need teamwork to, to get through um, scenarios like this where it's just overwhelming busy. How are the medical personnel, you know, the, the doctors, the nursing staff, I mean, how are the people who, you know, don't just get to pop in there for 12 days and then come out, but they're, they've been in the middle of this, you know, for a month. How are they dealing with it? Uh, so, um, you know, going into this, when we first got there, didn't know how to take it. You know, uh, you don't know anybody. They don't know you. You don't, you know, you don't know how much years of experience they have. Um, I think us going into hell, we were kind of initially a little isolated just by, um, you, you didn't know, uh, you didn't know your staff and everything. But as, you know, as you worked and you kind of started talking, you realized like these, the staff were just, they were burned out. I mean, they were, uh, you know, I think they were actually going close to two months that they were dealing with it. I mean, um, they were short staffed partly because uh, several of the individuals there had been affected by the virus also. So we're on isolation or hospitalized. But um, they were just, I couldn't imagine doing that for two months already. You know, we did it for two weeks. And like I said, it was pretty exhausting. So these, these nurses were, you know, excited. I didn't see it, but they were saying a lot of those nurses, you know, where they're crying to, for you know just really thankful that somebody came in and kind of alleviated everything um you know the physicians same thing overwhelming i mean every night you know having to go to code situations and not one or two but five to six you know 12 hour shift i mean uh, mentally and i think physically from doing compressions and cpr so many times in the night i mean it was they were uh, uh they were desperate for help um, but it was good to go and kind of see that. Now that you're back, do you have to self-quarantine just to make sure that, uh, that you were protected enough while there? Yeah. So, um, we have to check daily temperatures and kind of, um, look for signs and symptoms of, you know, make sure we didn't, we don't get exposed and we report that through uh, our employee health and HR department to, so they check on us. Um, so I think I'm going on day five and just checking temps with no symptoms. 
Um, but yeah, we're self quarantined for up to 14 days is needed. So, Chewy, one of the, the things I've been asking each of my guests to close out these interviews is what's something that's bringing you hope? So as, as you've seen, you know, the response of, of your colleagues, maybe in Amarillo, uh, as you've been in a situation like you were in, in, in New Jersey, I mean, is, is there anything about this process that, that gives you some optimism for the future? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it's just how everybody came together. I mean, yes, the healthcare workers, everything, but you know, the community, I mean, across the, the United States, you know, how everybody was actually being proactive for the most part. Um, and, and then I'm hoping, you know, just like me and my colleagues that um, decided to go to Jersey where everybody was against us, you know, I mean, I get it, you know, family, friends, they thought, we're, you're crazy, you're going to the middle of this pandemic where it's worst case scenarios and, and uh, you know, you heard about death and how easy it is to contract it and here, we're, here we were going, um, not really thinking about that, mostly to help alleviate um, all the, you know, just how over there. So I, I think that, I think that, you know, if that was the case in Texas, I would hope that that would be the same thing. And I, I know that health care workers would um, kind of get together and kind of bring that. But, yeah, you know, in the middle of all the deaths and everything, I mean, there was some positivity that came out of this, you know, with patients actually um, getting better and going home. So um, that was also, you know, good. To, we didn't get to see it, but we got to hear about a lot of that. So. All right, Chewy Hernandez, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Okay, no problem. Hi, my name is uh, Amberly Edwards. I'm from Amarillo. I'm a registered nurse. Um, I've been a registered nurse for about nine years. Um, I've been around the healthcare industry for approximately 20 years. Um, I did some secretary work when I was in my 20s um, and went to nursing school in my mid-30s. I started my career at BSA as a uh, resource nurse and ended up um, being a travel nurse. And here I am in New York. To start, thank you for being on the show. I I know that um, the time you have available to do this is pretty limited. You've been working really long shifts. So thank you for that. Um, Tell me a little bit about the circumstances that led to you deciding to, to go put in some time in New York City. Well, um, like I said before, I've, I'm, I'm a travel nurse. Um, I've been a, a travel nurse for about about six years. Um, I traveled a little bit around Texas for two years, and then I ended up just by chance getting a New York license. Um, and I, that was about five years ago, and I got my first contract in the Bronx. Worked um, in and around the New York area on and off for five years. Um, so when I heard about what was going on, um, it was only natural for me to want to come back and help because I, I did fall in love with the city. Um, I've always loved New York. As a child, it was a little bit of a, um, <clears throat> I had a love affair with the city, even as a, even as a little girl. So, um, you know, when that came to life as an adult and this happened, it was only, it was just natural for me to come back. At what point did you, did you come back uh, and begin, you know, your work at this moment with this crisis? Um, I left Amarillo. It was April 7th. Um, I think I signed up um, with it with a known agency that I'd worked with before. I, I came to a facility that I'd worked with before um, just because I wanted I wanted the, um, the process to go as quickly as possible. And sometimes there are 
agencies out there that sometimes don't have the best intentions. So I wanted to come with somebody I knew. Um, so the process only took me three or four days. So when I decided to come and when I got here, that it was literally maybe three days, four days at max. Where have where have you been working? And tell me about you know just the the numbers of your shifts. Like like how many hours are you working a day? Um, I'm working at Maimonides um, Medical Center. It is in Brooklyn. Um, it's in a very um, Jewish Orthodox community. It's a little bit different than what people would imagine New York to be. Um, my shifts are I'm working night shifts, which is 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Uh, when I first got here. I was working six shifts a week uh, and lots of overage to the shift. Um, so I was getting close to like 80 hours a week. Now it's leveled off. It's about 65 hours a week. Um, and, and they're, they're hard hours. They're not, um, they're not light hours. These are, these are very busy shifts. You're on your feet. Most of your shift, right? you're, you're in your patient's room and I, I'm an ICU nurse. So my patients are very sick. Um, so it's, um, so they're very long hours or hard hours. Tell me about the experience itself. Um, you know, the, the patients who have made it into the ICU, as you said, are very, very sick. Um, what are some of the things that you're seeing as you try to treat them? Um, well, first off, it's just the way they, they look and the way they present. Um, and I think in the beginning... Patients were afraid, you know, they were afraid to come to the ERs and for good reason, um, because, because it is so virulent, it's, it's, it's very contagious. So they would wait till later and they would end up intubated really quick. Um, and with, with that, they would be, you know, very sick by the time they would get to us. And they just, they look, they, they just have a different look to them. Um, they're, their respiratory system is completely different than what you would see with the flu. Um, I, it's kind of hard to explain in regular terms versus nurse terms. Um, like when you have a flu patient who is on the ventilator, you might have a lot of secretions. You're able to suction a lot. And these patients, you're not, which is really strange. Yet they are full of, con- they're very congested, but you can't, you're not able to get those those secretions and things out through the vent. So it's more difficult. They're just, it's where we're learning. We're learning how to treat them better. But in the beginning, we didn't know how to do that. And they're just, um, they they just look completely different. I I don't know how to explain it. The color is different. Their numbers are different. They tend to follow the same trend. Um, They, they get sick. Their respiratory system crashes. Um, and then they'll kind of look better for a little bit. And then you'll, you know, five minutes later, they're in the tank and you're, you've got a really, really sick patient and there's not much you can do. You're backed into a corner respiratory wise and you're looking at a, you know, a fatal cardiac situation and it, and it just happens. Um, it's just something that we haven't ever seen and you have multiple patients doing it at the same time. So it, it's, it's not an easy, it's not an easy condition to treat. You mentioned, you know, the the learning process for medical personnel. Um, tell me, tell me about how that has evolved for you. I mean, what did you think about it going in, and and what have you realized, you know, being there on the ground for so long? Well, when I came, um, I did. I thought it, I thought it was a bad flu. You know, I, I that's what I thought. I thought, well, it's just a bad flu. 
um, these people that are that are getting sick and ending up on the ventilators, um, they have an underlying condition. They either have, you know, they have a cardiac problem or they have bad asthma or they're old or they're young, so, some things of that nature. Um, and that's not necessarily true. And those people do have, their odds are definitely less. But we are seeing, you know, some people that, that don't have that underlying condition and they get just as sick. Um and we're we're kind of learning, you know, like to to keep try to keep them off the ventilator, or um, and when when we get them on the ventilator, to to manage it differently. Yeah, and it, it's just it's just learning to we've ma- we're managing them some managing the ventilator different different than what we're accustomed to, and that that gets that's even above my pay grade. You have to have a you know a pulmonologist or your well-versed respiratory therapist to kind of get into those dynamics. But um, they are learning more on how to treat that um, with their vent settings. In the beginning, they didn't know how. Um, and so, you know, and we have to kind of think New York because New York has been the, the learning curve. There, we've lost a lot of people, um, but we've learned from those lives that we've lost, you know, what to do and what not to do. You know, as a nurse who's worked in the ICU, I mean, certainly you are accustomed to losing patients. But but tell me about the emotional toll. Um, you know, obviously the physical toll is difficult. You, you've been on your feet for so long. But tell me how you're handling it, you know, just as a person in that sort of environment. Um, well, of course, you, you lean on your your, your fellow nurses, your, your, you know, your the, the other staff, because you, de- you develop a rapport, you, you develop a... A relationship with these people because you go through so much with them. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you another reason I really wanted to come and after I learned about the virus and how it how it was happening and how the hospitals were completely shut down is is the disconnect from the family. Um, the, the patients don't they, if they die they die, they pretty much die alone. Um, that you're as a nurse, you're the person they die with, um, and to me, that's very important. As a nurse, that's one of my top priorities: is that you shouldn't die alone. Um, and being said, that's that's a lot of torture for the family. I mean, there there are some families that are coming in, you know, that are masking up and coming in and kind of risking it, whether they be older what have you, but, you know, risking it to, for those last moments with their family. But in the beginning, those moments weren't, weren't, weren't allowed. Um, but we are the messenger. I mean, so we can either FaceTime, hope that that patient maybe can wake up or, you know, or, or give us words and hope they hear those words to the patient. But, you know, it's really, really hard on the family. I mean, just imagine sitting at home quarantined in a city that shut down and your husband, your your, you know, your mom, your dad, your sister, is in a hospital room by themselves, um, and and a nurse is going in minimally because of the virus, and they're they're in their last moments. So that's that's yeah. some pretty hard stuff. I know that you have continued to stay in touch with people in Amarillo um, and shared, you know, your perspective on the seriousness of the disease. Um, you know, for people here who who maybe have not seen, you know, as intense an outbreak for sure as as New York City, what are some of the things that you're telling, you know, your friends and family back home about, you know, how serious to take it and and how to how to think about what's happening? 
Um, well, well for, you know, first and foremost, it's not the flu. Um, it's more serious than the flu. Um, again, we can't stay, we can't be on lockdown forever. We have to figure out a way to live with a virus. Um, but we've got to be smart about it. Um, and someone, someone else who is healthy, their rights don't supersede someone's rights who does not have an immune system or who has a, a compromised immune system. So, I mean, we have to do what's best with, for the greater good of everyone. You know, you have to wear your mask. You have to, you need to, we need to keep up the social distancing um, because if it does take off again, inevitably, if you if there's a breakout or you know a spread in the city, someone someone that you know will be affected, or someone you love is going to get affected um, just because of how contagious it is. Um, yeah, you might be a healthy person, but the person next to you may not be, and it's not. We have to figure out a way that's fair for everyone because everyone has every everyone has rights. And it's, I feel like that's what I'm seeing. Some people on social media, you know, um, have this attitude that, well, if you're afraid of it, stay home. That's not fair. Um, you know, they have rights just like anyone else. Or that's my opinion, at least. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things I've been closing each of these interviews with is asking my guest, what's something that's bringing you hope? So you've been in really difficult situations. Uh, you've been dealing with family, with, with very sick patients. Is there anything in this moment, um, whether it's with your colleagues, whether it's with uh, the larger community, that, that's giving you any optimism? What's bringing me hope is I think that people's attitudes change, that we hang on to some of the um, pieces of the shelter in place. We've spent more time at home, um, spent more time with our families. Um, and we. I think for me personally, um, it's just changed the way that I look at the outside world. Um, that things, some things are not as important as I thought they were. Um, and I hope that we, that we continue to hold on to those, to those ideals. Um, that's what I hope that we, you know, that, that we realize, you know, that, that love is more important. Um, the economy is going to, it's going to work. It's going to work itself out. It always does. But I hope that we hold on to, you know, just family and and people, you know, and being home is not all that bad. All right. Amberly Edwards, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for asking. And that concludes the episode. First, I want to say thanks to the healthcare professionals who gave up their precious time to be interviewed. Sometimes these interviews took place right before their shifts began or after the shifts ended. Uh, I really am grateful for how they are representing the Amarillo area in such a meaningful and necessary way right now. I'm also grateful to Angelina Marie for editing these episodes. Thanks to Pestex for sponsoring the show. If you or your business is interested in sponsoring Hey Amarillo on an ongoing basis, contact me through heyamarillo.com or visit patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Supporters of the show include these executive producers, Valerie Gooch, Joshua Rafe, Jess Heredia, Josh Wood, Criselda, Patrick Burns, Wilson Lemieux, Wes Reeves, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Neil Nossiman, Jennifer Callahan, Ryan Pennington, and Corey Burns. This has been episode 142. My name is Jason Boyette. Stay safe, wear a mask, and love your neighbor. <laughs>